Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Plays the Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. I'm joined by Matt Bianco, Mr. Matt Bianco, as my kids call him, and Tim McIntosh, a playwright from out in Pacific Northwest. I figured you got to have some kind of descriptive things for these people on the show. Um, I could have just said I'm joined by Matt Bianco and Tim McIntosh, two lily-livered, action-taking, glass-gazing, super-serviceable Finkel rogues. Finical rogues, I meant. I've ruined it. Anyway, welcome to the show, guys. How's it going? Terrific. Great. Terrific. <laughs> terrific. You're terrific. Matt's just great. Anyway, we're here to talk about King Lear, Act 2. As people know who are listening, we're going through the entire King Shakespeare one act at a time. This is the third episode, but only the second act we're going. So our plan to go through it one act at a time backfired quickly, but I think it was for the better. So act two of King Lear, we were just saying off the air, not a lot really happens except some really um, creative insults by, by Kent, (laughs) but there are certainly some thematic things that are happening here. Um, I have a question first though, as we're, as we're kind of reading through, Act two here. Where's your sympathy level for King Lear? Now we'll just say we'll just assume that you've read Act Two and that our listeners have read Act yeah, Two. Yeah, yeah. We'll come back and we'll talk thematic stuff. We'll talk about a lot of the nature stuff. We talked about that in the discussion of the previous act, but there's quite a lot of uh, references to nature here. Both of you wanted to talk about that, so we'll get back to that. But at the end of Act Two, where's your sympathy level for Lear? Are you are you judging him? Are you, I mean, in terms of like, are you being harsh? Do you feel like he's being kind of a, a loser in how he's approaching this whole thing? Um, making bad decisions and compounding them with more bad decisions? Or do you feel like he has been treated badly and thus is deserving of our, our sympathy? Tim, I'm going to let you go first on that one. Now that I've rambled on for a minute to give you a chance to think. I, I, I think this is the low ebb of my respect for the king at the end of act two i think he is 
Um, I mean, perhaps he's been treated poorly by Gonorill and Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he's been treated terribly. It's more his, he feels insulted and he flies into a rage. He calls down insults upon both of them. I mean, brutal, curses, brutal, yeah. nasty insults and curses. Yeah, yeah. Curses is a better word than insults. Um, and I think at this point he is, he's in the pit. I, for me, this is the low point of my respect for Lear. Matt, you just made a um soundless exclamation with your arms in the air at that you disagree i flailed a little bit you, you did flail I, I that's true i threw my head back rolled my eyes and flung my arms into the air <laughs> <laughs> um, well now you have to give us words for what the expression meant this is this is where my sympathy for lear starts accelerating upward Go here on. i mean it, it begins except like I have, it's hard for me to sympathize except only intellectually speaking only in the, in act one, scene one with, you know, the way he, what he asks his daughter, uh, right. what he asks of his daughters. Yeah. yeah. The, the whole scenario that he lays out. Right. Puts himself in. But then in the remainder of act one, the sympathy starts returning because of the way Goneril re- treats him. And then act two, it starts accelerating upward for me. In, in sympathizing with Lear. And uh, that you feel like he has been treated more badly as the play is going on. Increasingly worse. Right, and now they're ganging up on him. Yeah. Can you show me? where? where so where do you see that? Is there a specific spot that you're thinking? Not that I, I mean, I didn't ask him that question, but let's, you're, you're being the, uh, you're throwing the gauntlet right. down here, so I'll let you defend yourself first. Sure. So, so, Reagan... Obviously, just I mean, in in the interaction between the between the three of them, well, the group of them. Mm-hmm. This is um, in scene four. In scene four. Yep. Reagan um, immediately takes Goneril's side, and like doesn't even ask. I mean, doesn't even like look for Lear to give an option, give him an opportunity to defend himself or to explain. Mm-hmm. She, she just immediately sides with with Goneril. But that happens all the way back in scene one, Act two, scene one, when. Um, when Cornwall, Reagan, and then the attendants all come in to uh, speak to Gloucester and Edmund, and and then Reagan says of of Kent, was he not companion with the riotous knights that tended upon my father? And then Gloucester says, I know not. And then Edmund says, Yes, he was of that consort, except he wasn't. Wait. How do we know that? Because Kent, remember Kent got banished and then came back, um, came back after, I mean, at the point Goneril's make, has already begun making the, has already been making the accusations is when Kent returns. So Kent's a part of his consort, but not necessarily a part of the riotous consort. Um, Cause they've the, been the, away. The, the, yeah. The, the accusation of riotous consorts had already been happening before Kent returned in, in disguise. But when, when Kent comes back, I mean, he immediately starts a little bit of a riot. Yeah, I think he, I think no, that's he true. Could very easily be placed among the riotous concert. Sure, he arrived a little bit later, 
um, that he was there causing a riot and amongst the consort. So am I, do we, do you, do you guys have different levels of, um, trust or I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's just the word that I'm thinking of for, for Kent. Yeah. Do you, do you, like how, what was your view of Kent, Matt? Just quickly. I, I could, my personal take is that Kent is a, is an honorable man who's doing the right thing. Um, in, in basically every, every situation. I, I do honorable a, and trustworthy and we as the audience can, yes, can believe in it. I do have a note next to one of his speeches where I think he uh, could come across as less trustworthy. I'm, like I made a note to bring that up as a discussion point. Um, so I, I'm curious which, how you view Kent there, Tim. Oh, same as you. Same as okay. you. I mean, I, he causes trouble, but when he causes trouble, we know that his intention is ultimately to support and ally himself with the king. So, I mean, I suppose if someone were on the side of Goneril and Reagan, they would say, well, no, he's not an honorable guy. He's like picking fights with our servants. But from the audience's point of view, we know that there's a definite, he's not just randomly picking fights. He's doing so with intention. Yeah. And it's a good intention. Right. I was thinking about how, a lot of times in Shakespeare plays, or well, you know, now that I now that I'm saying this, it might be a purely personal experience, but sometimes it's not always exactly clear what the two sides want, and that's part of the part of something of the mystery and what makes them so psychologically rich um, <laughs> and challenging. And some so sometimes you're not, you know, it seems some sometimes it can seem vague or emotional what they want, and you have to do some digging to figure out exactly what is it exactly that that they're saying is the problem here and how do they want to resolve it. And I was wondering if you see the sort of lines being drawn in this play as being um, um, clearly drawn. Like, do we know exactly what it is that Reagan and Goneril actually have a problem with Lear about? And then do we know exactly what Lear's problem is with them? And do we know who's on each side? Like, does, does that make sense? Like, do we have yeah. the battle lines actually drawn clearly yet? Um, I, I, I think for, for like all the different characters, who's where? Well, let's, who's on which let's side? just say major characters. I mean, I'm not saying like every, every character. In some cases, it doesn't particularly matter or, we're, or it's oh, very right. clearly told that. I think, I think Edmund's still up for grabs. I mean, not, not whether he's on the daughter's side or Lear's side, I think that's clear. But whether he's on the daughter's side or his own side, I think is up for grabs, yeah. He's kind of the, the uh, free agent. Yeah. But otherwise, I think it's all pretty clear who's where. Do we, do you think that, so what, so let's just, let's, no, well, let's just take it, let's take a step yeah. back, I guess, and look at this big picture. <laughs> Tim, when, <laughs> when you look at Goneril and Reagan, do they want the same things? Are they after the same thing? They're sort of aligning themselves with each other, but it doesn't even, I, I, it almost seems like it's a, like in two years, they could easily be at each other's throats and once their father's Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. So they, what is it that they want? Then do they want the same thing? I think they each want the kingdom. And I think they are doing that classical psychological thing. They're triangulating. They're bonding with each other because they have a common enemy. Mm-hmm. But once that common enemy, Lear, um, is put out to pasture literally and figuratively, then it's very easy to foresee that these two don't really 
love each other. There's no bond really between them. And independent of a common enemy, surely they are going to start warring with each other. Mm. Do, so what is it that, so they want the kingdom. Do, they, do you think they see their father in the same way? Do they, do, do you think they're like, do you huh. think they both see him as sort of a crazy old man or do they see him as just an obstacle and this, and thus they treat him badly. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I was thinking about that. Like, do you, do we think that they actually look at him and they're troubled by his behavior, truly troubled and they're worried for the kingdom. And so they're saying, we have to take this from you because if you, if we don't, everything's going to go, you know, to just right. going to go crazy. And, you know, yeah. What do you think, Tim? I, I think they just see him as an obstacle. I think they're both looking for any excuse that they can find to um, diminish his power. And the for, first for way the to sake do that of their is, own power, not for the sake of the yeah, right. yeah. I don't think that they're genuinely worried. I mean, they might give a little lip service to their worry, but I think in their heart of hearts, they're not worried that King, that Lear is going to go back on his, have, have enough power to go back on his word. They're, they're in the power position now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, the, um, uh, that's how I, how I view them as well. He's an obstacle. Okay. So in, 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 ter- in, 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 in analogical terms, I kind of picture this as like Lear has, has decided the kingdom, you know, he's, he's getting up there in age and the kingdom needs to be needs to be, there needs to be a a plan for succession. And so he's creating this kind of like, like monarch in training scenario where, where they are going to kind of manage the day-to-day operations of the kingdom. He's still going to be the king as far as, as you know, the, the crown and authority or whatever, but, but, or the, the, uh, the authority, sorry, the, um, like a figurehead perks or whatever. Yeah. He's like, like a, like a figurehead King. And then they be, they're kind of like the parliament except less parliamenty and, <laughs> yeah. and then they're training and then, and then eventually, you know, he'll, he'll be done. And then, you know, one of them or, or the, either the kingdom will be divided permanently or one of them will become the head monarch. Um, and what they've determined is we don't need to be trained. We need to eliminate this guy so that, we can become the monarch now. And, and then they've concocted a plan by which to rid themselves of his figurehead presence. And then they can be all of it. They can be the figure, the head, the power, the authority, the rewards or whatever. Right. Hmm. Um, and, and that's what all this is about. That's how I see it. So I don't, I don't think that they see him as being crazy or senile or, or lost in his dotage or whatever. I see them as, as saying all of that to convince everybody else that he is so that they can, so that they can have their coup as bloodless as possible. Um, in, in fact, like to put it in, I, I hate doing this, so I'm going to regret it probably, but I hate taking something from, you know, a, a term from modern from our, from our day and then kind of back applying it, mm-hmm. but it, they're kind of gaslighting him for lack of a better term, hmm. right? They're ma- they're saying we're doing all of this because of you, because of your actions, your behaviors. Yeah. But I don't really see him as being guilty of those things. 
Yeah, I was thinking like all the stuff they're accusing him of, where's the evidence of it? I mean, except right. maybe the question that he asked them. Right. One right. thing that's tr- uh, difficult, I guess, is a little challenging about some of these plays is how much time passes and all that kind of stuff. That's true. Can feel it can feel abrupt or it can feel unearned in some ways. But a play, you know, works within a different sort of set of limitations. Um, how do you? Uh, how do you guys view? Do you do you guys agree, Tim? Do you agree with Goneril and Reagan that Lear is crazy at this point? I think he's losing it. I don't think he's crazy yet, but I think he's losing it. He's, I think he's even seeing it. I mean, he's starting to say, you know, do not let me go mad. And I, I think, but, but I agree with Matt. I, and I like the term gaslighting. I think it's very appropriately used. Um, just probably everybody knows that term gaslighting. Um, but it, I didn't know it probably two years ago, even though it came from theater. It's basically when you, when, when an abuser disorients their victim by exaggerating the victim's wrongdoings, um, and, it, and it comes from an old play called Gas, like a 1940s play called Gaslights, in which this I think it was an abusive husband mm-hmm. is trying to destabilize his wife and he gaslights her. Um, and I think that I, I like that, Matt. I think that's a really apt description of what Gonorill and Reagan are doing. I think they're exaggerating. I don't think they're exaggerating what is happening. I think they're exaggerating. Um, they're expanding or inflating the deleterious effects of what's happening. Who okay, cares? So, so there's, they're seeing certain things about him probably due to him getting older and then they're making them seem worse than they are. Yeah. So do you think that his, as he begin, you said, you think he's beginning to lose it. Do you think he's beginning to lose it because of them? Or do you think he's beginning to lose it anyway? And thus they're sort of what they're seeing is coming true. And thus that they're right to feel the way that they, or to, to say the things that they, they're saying about him. I think ultimately that's a mystery. I don't know that, that Shakespeare tells us. So my speculation, the the origin of his craziness, my speculation is that the origin of his craziness is the, is his moral failure, his, his, his moral failure and his broken relationship with the innocent one Cordelia. Hmm. It's, and I, I think, I, I think part of that is it's that was um, a failing of that was driven by radical hubris. Matt, you're going to say something. Well, I think that it has to be something like that, something that's caused not by the mere passage of time, not by his mere age, but by some some other failing or some other action because well because of what happens later in the play that we don't want to spoil (laughs) but um because his his madness comes and goes for we'll put it that way for now um the uh the i'm inclined though to think that it's more of the daughters causing it um 
in the sense that I, it's, I think this is kind of Shakespeare's way of communicating that words have power and that when somebody's told long enough that they're crazy, they start mm-hmm. acting crazy. And then, um, but I can also see, I can also see it being a result of his moral failure um, because of the way that it, the conditions in which it, it, it comes and go, the conditions in which it comes and goes. So his craziness comes, and goes. his come, his craziness comes and goes. Yeah. I mean, Matt, your, your understanding makes complete sense. If you see Goneril and Reagan as the primary drivers of his, if, if you have sympathy with Lear, that his daughters are inflicting pain upon him. Then what? Then your account makes makes complete sense. I think if my account, which is it's the broken relationship and the hubris that broke the relationship with Cordelia, I think my account makes sense also. And we've still got like three acts to go, so we can kind of see if one of them, or maybe both of them, can hold water. Maybe both of them are completely substantiatable. To coin a word. Um, interpretations of what's what's driving him into madness, and perhaps not mutually exclusive. Yeah, and perhaps not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, but the, the what, one more thing back to the riotous nights thing that we started with with Reagan is is Reagan starts out in Act Two, Scene One, saying, "Was he Kent?" also mm-hmm. not companion with the riotous nights that tended upon my father. Gloucester says, I don't know. Edmund says he was. This is in scene one. Actually scene one, yeah. Then Reagan says, I was informed of this from my sister. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's... Thinking about that when I was... There's thinking. a point here, right, that Reagan hasn't seen this herself. Reagan isn't, doesn't, doesn't know about the riotous nights in any way except of the person who made the, the initial accusation. Also, I... I want to backpedal for a second here, Tim, just so we can keep looking at this and thinking about it as we go. But in that, that earlier, that earlier place in the earlier point in act one, scene three, when Goneril asks Oswald, if, if the Knights did this, um, or if the King, if the King struck him and, and then Oswald says, yes, I, I don't, I don't, I, like your point, I think your point was that is that you know we are, we don't have any reason to believe at this point, and perhaps even by the end of the play, that Oswald would be deceitful here, or right. or or that Oswald is um, that Shakespeare is giving us a scene where Goneril and Oswald are talking about something that never happened, as if it did happen, and they both know that it didn't happen, but they're pretending that it did happen in order to set the scene. For my case. The way, yeah. I, the way I'm interpreting, but I get that that makes sense. But there is there is something striking, uh, striking. See, there is something striking about the way she words the question. Right, she asks a leading question, and then Oswald gives her the answer that he thinks she expects. Can you read that? So it says. So Goneril says, "Did my father strike my gentleman for chiding of his fool, Oswald? I, madam." And if, if, if Goneril was a, was an attorney and asked that of a witness, Uh the, uh, the opposing attorney would, would um, object to that. Right. And the judge would, the judge would sustain the objection. So I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know. That's all I got. Okay. Hey, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I thought a lot about the exchange we had over this question last time. And I thought, what are the reasons why, Tim, that you think that Goneril and the servant, Oswald, are being... Just to be clear, you were talking, telling, you're talking to yourself? I was. I was talking okay. to myself. Okay. I'm just, just clarifying. <laughs> um, it's probably better than you talking to Matt when he's not there. That's true. But when you say it, you actually, what you actually say is, what are the reasons why, Tim, that we believe? You should use the, the uh, royal we. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it's not the royal we, it's the multiple personality we. <laughs> um, okay, so people. I think I mentioned one reason when we recorded. One of the reasons is I just don't think the text supports it. I mean, I think that you could, you could perhaps play it that way for me, you're playing against the grain of the text, but we can put that aside because I think you might say, well, maybe you're playing, you know, with the grain of the text. But there's two other reasons why. One of the reasons why is in every production that I've seen of Lear, the men are on the stage carousing in the background. And that's probably five productions that I've seen, either movies or live, maybe even six either movie productions or live productions, the men are always like drinking and fighting kind of in the background of the scene. Okay. So then I thought, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's in the text. It's just part of the tradition of performance, which we could have a whole other conversation about what is the relationship between traditions of performance and the text in Shakespeare, which might be kind of fun um, but I'll bypass that for now to say there's another reason why. And I think the reason why is to, to the best of my recollection, if a character in Shakespeare is lying, I could not think of a single instance that I, in my memory in which the audience does not know that the character is lying. Hmm. Because typically at the beginning of the scene, like the Shakespeare's not trying to hide their right what whether the truth of what they're saying to from the audience, right? Was there any not even not even in Hamlet, huh? No, in Hamlet, that's that's not true in Hamlet. What is it in Hamlet? Well, you you, I mean, I, it's it's more of a case like you don't know whether he's lying or not. Well, that's the point, right? You don't know if he's lying or not. You don't know if the ghost is lying or not. In Act One, in, in Act One, you don't know if Hamlet is lying when he says that he doesn't love Ophelia, or that he does love her, because he says both. <laughs> um, Hamlet's pro probably the most where it happens the most, right? Where you don't know when he's lying and when he's telling the truth. Probably most of what he says. And I, and I would argue that we do know that he loves Ophelia. And that we do trust the ghost and that are, we are confirmed in trusting the ghost. And I think that we know that he's lying to Ophelia because we get, uh, the beginning of in, in two, one, or at the end of one, we get someone, Oh, it's Polonius reporting Hamlet's words to Ophelia about how much he loves her. And we also have the letter that he has delivered to Ophelia. I think we do know that he loves her. And I think well, when he starts um, 
when he's breaking up with her, I think that's part of the reason that scene works so well is because we know that he's lying. Clearly, this is a big question for the Hamlet podcast that we're going to do in the in the future. <laughs> yeah, but also yeah. You, you might be um, a little more trusting of of late, late teen and early twenty year old men um, and their desire <laughs> to uh, to know in the Adam and Eve sense to know a young lady. <laughs> Well, but but I think I think it's a pattern in, in Shakespeare. That's my contention, and I mean I absolutely could be wrong. I don't know that I know the corpus well enough to say it you never a study of this particular question. Right. Yeah. But I the the plays that I know, I feel pretty confident that I could give an account for why the audience knows that if a lie is going to happen, if a character is lying, we know that that character is lying. Um, this idea of what causes Lear to be crazy is really interesting to me. Um, because what we're essentially getting is the play, the play sort of begins, the drama of this tragedy sort of begins with the disordering of relationships. Um, you know, you've got this family this sort of, fa- of course, the, the breakup and um, disorder of family relationships is basically like the Shakespeare, like every play is about that, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so we, you know, once the family dissolves, in a sense, his sort of sense of his own sort of mental sanity seems to begin to dissolve. Um, and I find that really fascinating. And so it seems like in a lot of ways, Cordelia, um, is sort of a unifying perhaps for his own sanity is sort of a unifying principle or just a unifier and her, and her continued absence throughout this act seems to correspond with the increasing lack of sanity that he's displaying. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think my understanding of like medieval, you know, the medieval understanding of insanity had to do, had a lot to do with the idea of disorder and um, you know, uh, like, sin leading to mental yeah uh, mental um illness yeah um and so I'm, I'm curious if you if you can see like is there some is there do you, tim you mentioned leo's hubris yeah do you think that you said that you think his hubris is leading to him to his insanity and that seems to fit with the idea of like the medieval concept of a sin leading to mental illness um do you think that we can point that it's that simple then that we can point to a failure on Lear's <laughs> part leading to his own insanity and thus um, the actions of his daughters or are they, are the daughters recognizing his insanity and then acting in to gain yeah. power um, because of that? Like, are they seeing a weakness in acting or are they, Responding. Are they seeing a weakness? Say it again, David. Are they, are they seeing a weakness? Seeing what? a mental weakness in their father and sensing a chance, and then responding like, you know, kind of they see they sense the opportunity right. for power, sensing the opportunity, and they respond because of his insanity. Or are they looking and they seeing? Are they are they judging something that he did to have been wrong, and thus saying you don't deserve to be king anymore? I think they're. And I think I'm agreeing with Matt on this. I think they're gaslighting him. I think they're seeing a weakness um, and they are inflating it for their own purposes. Okay. I, 
I don't see them. Maybe I've missed it, but I don't see a moment in the text where they're saying, man, they're taking a moral stance. Yeah. Yeah. And they're kind of pretty corrupt characters themselves. So they're, their moral compasses. He flailed again. He flailed again. Oh, good. Let him have it. Let him have the mic. It was a one arm flail. though. It was, it wasn't quite as extreme. It was very theatrical though. (laughs) I just, I don't understand. um, I don't understand if, if they are right, that his nights are riotous, that that's actually happening. Then they do have a moral justification for eliminating his nights. They do have moral grounds for that. I thought that David was talking about the moral. I don't see them morally reproving Lear for his treatment of Cordelia, which is my oh, contention. The primary, that's, the, that's the primary source of why he, my argument is that's why he is losing it is because I think he's being overwhelmed by his guilt over estranging his daughter. I mean, you can even see at the end of this act, he keeps mentioning her indirectly. Yeah, I that's did why I her wrong. Up, there's this continued ab, she's gone. And then at the end, the reference to her being gone, it seems to be haunting him. Uh-huh. Almost, almost ghost-like. Like she, yeah. she's like, you could do an interpretation of this where, even if you wanted to have some freedoms where, she, where her, her lack of presence is haunting him. Like she could, appear in dreams or something um, because oh, it's just to, dramatically we, influencing his personality. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we've got precedence for that in Macbeth. He murders his best friend and his best friend shows at the dinner table. And when his best friend shows up at the dinner table as a ghost, Macbeth loses his mind. I mean, loses his mind. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm reading Lear that way. He descends, just like Macbeth descended into madness, likewise Lear is descending into madness because of this, this hubris that severed his relationship with his favorite daughter. Well, I suppose then the question is, if, she had, if he had not sent her, away, sent her away and just been upset with her, how would things have been different? I mean, we can't know that. I'm just yeah. I yeah, I, I I I think I think that the cause that you've identified is is plausible at this point, right? That it's it's um it's believable that that could be the reason for his insanity. For, for his insanity, I, I still think that insanity. I still think that it could be uh, due to the gaslighting that um that they keep telling him that he's mad and then he goes mad as a result. Um, you know, you brought up that line in act two, scene four, where Lear is talking to Goneril and Reagan and it's around line two, 17 or so, um, where he says to Goneril, I prithee daughter, do not make me mad. Mm-hmm. Um, and you connected that to his, senility or his insanity um the the line there though more more literally just means don't make me angry right right but but he could have used the word he could have chosen the word mad there he being will could have chosen the word mad there because of the double the double mm-hmm. needing to it. it would be keeping with his you know general approach to language 
Although yeah. also also the meter, he needs to fit the meter there. So angry wouldn't fit. I mean, he needed to make other changes, I suppose. He could have yeah. said I prayed. Or him. or he um, you know, Shakespeare just did fun things by accident. That's that's the thing we know about him. He was just, just walked into accidental genius. Um there is another place though where he says um on the on the you know the angry mad insanity question he yeah. says um well but I, while you're looking let me just say this no he says i found it you found it all right <laughs> um it's, it's still scene 4 but it's back to line 119 he says oh me my heart my rising heart but down mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then the fool says, cry to it, uncle. Uh, like he, see, he sees that his passions are trying to rule him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's trying to suppress that. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. want to be ruled by his passions. And he's, he seems to be aware that that's, that that's happening or starting to happen or has been happening. And he's trying to stop it. I don't know. But Well, that, that, but that goes back to what I was saying. The medieval concept of sin, another way of looking at it, is disordered passions mm-hmm. leading to insanity. But that's the cause of it. Um, so I guess one of the questions then was: so what? What is the sin that that Lear sees or fears? Does he see something that he has done wrong? A sin that he's committed? A a passion that is specifically dis, a specific passion that is disordered or growing increasingly disordered that is, that is leading to the insanity that he fears is growing within him. Does that make sense? Say it one more time, David. So is there a specific disordered passion? or sin that Lear sees within himself or, or is feeling guilty about that is leading to what he, that leads to the insanity that he fears is growing in him. Is it just that he, like, is it just that he got rid of his favorite daughter? The, the disorder being he's mm-hmm. thrown his family into, into disrepair or is there, is there something else? Look at line one Oh five, two, two, seven. What, what's, what's in two, four. He's talking. He's not talking about himself here. He's talking about what's the line, Matt? Two, what, is, what does he say? One hundred five through one hundred seven. Oh, just read it. Yeah. He said so. Okay, so he's talking about Reagan and Cornwall, who have refused, who have refused to come to the to come to speak to him because he's arrived at their home, and he says they, he's been told that they are ill. And he says, we are not ourselves when nature being oppressed commands the mind to suffer with the body. I'll forbear. So he was trying, <laughs> he was, at this point, he was trying to get them, he was trying to get Gloucester to go command them to come out and speak with him. And then he says, well, okay, if they're, if they're genuinely ill, then, then I'll, I'll, I'll wait. Um, although just a couple of lines later, he changes his mind, but. But it's interesting that he says we are not ourselves when nature being oppressed commands the mind to suffer with the body. So there's, there's something to that, that when, when nature is, is disordered, when nature is out of, out of whack, um, then there's an affliction of the mind. It's interesting. The idea of the personification of nature commanding the mind. Yeah. 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 Especially after he's been giving so many commands to nature. That hasn't happened yet. It has. Well, not the so many. <laughs> I guess it has the curses, right? When he's commanding. Yeah, right. With the curses. Right. Okay. Right. I see. What, what do you guys, I mean, I love that you highlighted that line, Matt, because 
I read that one over and over to make sure that like I had it, I had it, what I think I have, what I think is an understanding of that line. That's not, uh, that is not a light line. That is a very philosophically dense line. There's a lot happening there. Yeah, this, Matt. Matt was <laughs> speaking of flailing. Matt just had a bit of a, a duel with a large bug that had crept into our studio, and while he was doing that, his headphones came out, so he missed. He was saying which exact which line that was. Um, but uh, yeah, it was the same line. I mean, I, why, we should probably read a little bit. Um, uh, let's read. Let's read a few extra lines. Yeah. I'm gonna back up and then read a little bit further. So let's go to. Um, uh, you know, the maybe he is not well is line 103, and then 104 says, Infirmity doth sn- still neglect all office whereto our health is bound. Here's Matt's line We are not ourselves when nature, being oppressed, commands the mind to suffer with the body. I'll forbear. And I'm fallen out with my more headier will to take the indisposed and sickly fit for the sound man. Death on my state. Wherefore should he sit here? This act persuades me that this remotion of the Duke and her is and her is practice only. Give me my servant forth. So he changes his mind, as you said, but like even the stuff there about him, it, he continues the theme with the fallen out with my more headier will to take the indisposed and sickly fit for the sound man. We're certainly at least getting his his head space is all all full of this idea of the sound mind, the sound man. Mm-hmm. Well, and but look at don't don't miss the line about the duke. Like just before you started, he says, "Fiery, the fiery duke." Tell the hot duke that no, but not yet. Maybe he is not well. Yeah, um, I wonder how much this. So how you play this would be really interesting, right? Yeah, he starts to yell at him, and then all of a sudden he turns away and looks to the audience. He starts talking to himself, and then when does he return back? Um, does he like what's the line that he turns back to? Gluster and continues that conversation. So is he about to yell at the fiery Duke? And so does it kick back in where he says, Give me my servant forth, go tell the Duke that and his wife I'd speak with them. And this old mm-hmm. line mm-hmm. uh 103 or 104 through 113 is him talking to himself. <laughs> I mean that's that'd be really interesting. Just how many lines could he? How many lines in, in these scenes, particularly in this act, could he just be talking to himself? Yeah. Because as we know, as we just covered, you know, only crazy people talk to themselves. Mm-hmm. Tim. I mean, I, to, hark, to hearken back to the Macbeth scene where he, where Banquo's ghost comes to the banquet table. In that scene, there are so many lines that the character, the actor playing Macbeth there are so many lines that that actor has to make a choice, whether or not he's speaking to himself, Lady Macbeth, Banquo's ghost, or to the occupants of the table. And I mean, there are probably like a dozen really substantial choices that the actor has to make. And I think that the same thing is true here. I don't think it's a dozen choices that the actor would have to make, but there are a lot of things that you could say, okay, I think, this is Lear speaking to himself. Oh, I, I think this is now he's speaking to the clown. Okay, now he's speaking to Gloucester. I think it's really complicated. You could have him talk to the fool because it seems like the fool is one person who he does trust. You know, when Gloucester leaves in this scene, 
um, it's just Lear and the Fool on stage. And Lear mm-hmm. has that little line, oh, me, my heart, my rising heart, but down. So there's that idea of like the rising passions again, and he's trying yeah. to suppress yeah. them. Why doesn't Shakespeare tell us that though here? Tell us what? Because, you know, in, in a lot, I mean, there are multiple places throughout the play and all the plays where, where he'll say aside to Kent, to Goneril, to Lear, mm-hmm. um, in the middle of a, in the middle of a lengthier set of lines. I mean, just on the next page over line 130, Lear is talking to Reagan and then it says to Kent and then he, he comes back to Reagan. And it tells us in that in that passage when he the switches. The line is funny, by the way. Oh, are you free? <laughs> Some other time for that. <laughs> but I don't know that that I think Shakespeare did not write those stage directions. I think there are some stage directions that we have in our copies that he did write. I think to Kent, um, to Clown. My hunch is that those were not part of the original. Those have been supplied by an editor. Well, don't the brackets tell us that it came, which that it came from? Yeah, yeah. some, yeah, yeah. Some um, copies include those brackets, which would signal this is added later by an editor, or as part of the quarto, as opposed to the folio, or vice versa. Right, right, right. Something like that. But also, I think when he doesn't do choose to do that, probably is. I mean, as Tim has talked about. You know, Shakespeare himself was a performer and he was trying to give his, his characters and his, his uh, actors, you know, I think some freedom to be creative with it. And we've talked about how that's one of the things that makes the plays so um, continually adaptable, you know, generation over generation is that they stop, they don't, the freedom that the plays allow the performers and the directors, you know, the people who are working on the play in any capacity that freedom makes them, you know, so so long standing. Hey, there's your bug. Oh, <laughs> How did it get in here? I don't know. This is a, we are deep in the we, heart of the office. We are deep in the heart. <laughs> it's the heart of darkness in here. And speaking of suppressed rising hearts, um, <laughs> but down bug, but down, down bug. <laughs> My bug, my rising bug, but down. <laughs> Let's talk. Um, as or we could tell it, tis strange that they should so depart from home. Um, let's talk a little bit about the nature theme that's running yeah. throughout this act. Matt, you had some notes you wanted to bring up. You were chopping at the bit. Um, so I'll let was you. <laughs> The, well, the big one is in Act well, Two for Matt Bianco version of chomping at the bit. <laughs> the big one in Act Two, Scene One, is um, Edmund. So Edmund has, you know, cut himself to make it look like Edgar attacked him, and then turned Gloucester against him, <laughs> and then. They're all talking now. It's Reagan, Gloucester, Edmund, Cornwall. They're all together in a room. And Cornwall, the fiery duke, says, <laughs> after hearing the story of what happened, says, I'm on line um, 112. For you, Edmund, whose virtue and obedience doth this instant so much commend itself, you shall be ours. Natures of such deep trust we shall much need you. We first seize on. And the Edmund responds, I shall serve you, sir. 
truly, however else. Um, so we, here's an instance of where they're talking about nature's right. And, and apparently here, maybe, and Tim, I hear your take on this. It seems like they're, they're referring to his, the nature of mm-hmm. based on his relationship, you, you behaved like a, like a proper son. Right. right. Earlier up in line 105, he says, I hear that you have shown your father a childlike office, meaning you have behaved toward a father the way a son ought to behave, a proper son mm-hmm. ought to behave. Mm-hmm. And then Edmund says, it was my duty. He says, natures of such deep trust, we shall much need you we first seize on. So I, maybe it's more than just the nature between father and son or son and father, but the nature he has, he sees him as having the nature of somebody that's trustworthy. The way yes. a father would trust a son, um, a biological son, not a just a son, but a biological son. Yeah, right, right, and, and a legal one. He yeah. acted like he behaved like a legal son, not like a bastard son, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but here is here's an example of you know these natures come the nature question coming up, but also I, I think we know at this point also a very, very bad reading of it by Cornwall. Like Cornwall is extremely mistaken about hmm. Edmund's trustworthiness. Yes. So there, so there seems to be a lot um, of conversation about nature, but then almost everybody seems to be misreading natures. Right. Uh, Gloucester misreads Edgar's nature, misreads Edmund's nature. Mm -hmm, Cornwall mm -hmm. misreads Edmund's nature. Edmund's the only one that's able to read natures. He's the only one (laughs) that seems to be speaking the truth about nature, right? I know. I know. He sees himself for what he is, though. Yeah. Yeah. And he he admits his own... Because he even even says in Act 1... I don't think we touched on it last week, but in act one, he even says, my father is this kind of person. My brother is this kind of person. And I'm going to use that against them to get what I want. Yeah. Like one of them is honorable. Yeah. One of them is noble it's, or trustworthy or something like that. And then later on, I mean, I don't, I, he continues to do that as the play goes on. Um, but it's interesting how little for sort of the villain, the, the, we haven't really had a real villain yet. You know, it seems like, the daughters are the daughters, Scotland and Reagan are against their father, right? Or mm-hmm. is against them, and there's this conflict going on there. But neither of them really seem villainous yet, right? Like in a real tragedy. Like there's no, we don't have like Iago, right? Or, or even like Lady Macbeth, or however you want to look at it. Right. But Edmund seems like he'd fit that, but he's been in it relatively little compared to everyone else. Uh huh. And, and a couple of scenes he's been in, he's the only character on the stage for a little monologue, and then he leaves. So he's but kind of he hovering does, over his does. designs are hovering over it, but he actually is not dominating the stage yet. He's not, but we have seen him do Edgar wrong twice already. True, true, true. And and Gloucester. Right. And he's and well, I'm not, I'm not saying that he the effects aren't there, like but his actual presence on the stage has been limited compared to a yes. lot of the other. Right. Even even Kent has had more, I would guess I'm guessing, has had maybe not more lines because of the monologues, but more sp- screen time <laughs> more yeah. screen time but hey, the effects of Edmund are are you know sort of ever present they're hovering over things you know well it's interesting too that 
there's a pair, you know, we talked about the parallel between Gloucester and the sons and Lear and the daughters, right? In, um, in, you know, act one, Lear and the daughters, it's all about, I want you to do something positive to show me how much you love me, right? Mm -hmm. Show me that you love me the most. In act two, it's the, it's a negative statement, right? Like Edgar doesn't, Edmund doesn't show that he loves Gloucester more than Edgar. Or is it, is it on me? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where? Get it. (laughs) This is great. Great radio. (laughs) No, it's Edmund is attacking me. Um, In, in act two, scene one, Edmund does not try to convince Gloucester that he loves him more than Edgar does. He tries to convince him that Edgar hates him more than Edmund does. That Mm. makes sense. Mm. Right. Mm. So like after, you know, after, after Edmund gets Edgar to run off and then cuts himself pretending it was Edgar, he says that he fled this way, sir, when by no means he could, and he gets cut off by Gloucester who says, pursue him. Oh, go after. And then he comes back, you know, turns his attention back to Edmund by no means what? And Edmund says, persuade me to the murder of your lordship, but that I told him the revenging gods against patricides, parasites, did all the thunder bend, spoke with how manifold and strong a bond the child was bound to the father. Sir, in fine, seeing how loathly opposite I stood to his unnatural purpose. There he gets his natural again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fell motion with his prepared sword, he charges home my unprovided body, latched mine arm. And when he saw my best alarmed spirits bold in the quarrel's right, roused to the encounter or whether gasped by the noise I made, full suddenly he fled. And so there's, it just, he, you know, they're saying things like, I love you more than eyesight. He's saying things like, he hates you more than anything or whatever you know yeah against all nature he hates you yeah yeah so i i I have a speculation about this i agree with you matt i think that edmund in sort of um defying his unquote unnatural birth is instead putting forth to the audience in his first monologue that we should be judged by not um, the nature of our birth, but by our actions. That's what we should be judged by. Yeah, right. And I think what's really, I mean, yes, that's true. I mean, even in its, we take for granted that's true, but it's just, it's just. And there are so many times, I mean, even my dad told me that growing up, people would look down upon illegitimate offspring. You know, the child of, you know, who was born to unwed parents, it is not that child's fault. And I don't think it's a particularly just or Christian view to say that child should be viewed as um, somehow impure or corrupted. You're saying primogenitor was not the best way to go about things? I lost you. What do you mean? You're saying that's two firstborns. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in some ways, so you summarize what you're saying then about, about Edmund. So he's, he's not wrong in, in sort of his premise that leads to his behavior. 
Yeah, he's not wrong. And, and, now I, and I, except he is. This is the bizarre what, thing, right? He's saying that 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 we should not be judged by our natures, but by our actions. Except, except Edgar's nature matches his actions, and Edmund's nature matches his actions. But in a some and in some ways, Lear. I mean, is Lear not saying? the same thing when he asks his daughters to talk about how much they love him. Like, isn't he saying that they're going to be judged based on their actions? Well, that one's bizarre because he's actually saying you're going to be judged based on your words. Yeah. And that, cause Cordelia True. says, I've shown you by my actions that I love you. Yeah. And he says, and he says, that's yeah. not, that's not and, and I guess that's Cordelia's point. Right. Right. Yeah. So right, the, the right, thing yeah. is, I agree with you, Tim, that you're right. Except somehow in this weird twisted way, it's also, the, the natures happen to match the actions with those two brothers. Well, but then maybe Edmund sees right. himself. Like Edmund knows him. Edmund actually knows himself. And so he realized, so he says, this is who I am. And thus this is to get, to make my place in the world. This is, this is thus how I have to behave. I have to, I have to operate according to my nature. As you said, Right. He well, he's th he thinks that we don't, I mean, I don't know if he's right about that, but you're right. He does right. Think he, that's that. how, that's his this is the only way yeah. to correct, correct the, uh, the, the biases, the injustice of, of yeah. the culture. And you can even the make a case structure. like part of the reason that Lear loses his mind while acting offensively, but Edmund while also acting offensively keeps his mind is that Lear doesn't know who he is and Edmund does know who he is. Edmund's still going to, I mean, to ruin the play, get it in the end. It's not as if he's going to escape um, justice, but he at least is, he's very cognizant of his actions. His mind is very straight. He doesn't wobble. Lear's all over the place and it's not, well, <laughs> yeah, I'll just, I'll just say it. I don't think that Lear starts to regain himself until he understands and acknowledges what he's done. Then he, his mind starts to return. Mm -hmm. We have to look at that closely because that's where I'm, that's where I, I, like I said, I can see it your way, but I also see it another way. And so I want to watch yeah. that closely okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. as we go through these last three acts. Yeah. Well, we should, we should start thinking some final thoughts here. Edmund is, you guys said it, his philosophy is this very frightening mashup of genuine insight and a terrible depravity. It's, it's, it's both. That's part of the reason I think he's so intriguing is because he's not, I mean, unlike, let's say, Richard III, who knows he's an evil character from the opening monologue and tells you exactly what he's going to do and why he's going to do it, he feels, in, you know, he feels inferior, unlike Macbeth, who <coughs> also tells us exactly why he's going to do what he's going to do for, you know, for leaping ambition. Edmund knows what he's doing, but philosophically, he has a, I'll call it a very, it's kind of a sophisticated, erroneous philosophy that he's mm. acting out. 
That's your final thoughts on Edmund? Amen. Yes. Okay. My final thoughts are on Reagan. Go for it. I think that Reagan is an awful, awful, awful human being. Um, all through this act. I think I think beginning yeah, we didn't talk quite enough about their behavior. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting too is that Cornwall is even worse. Whereas with the with the with the other sisters reversed, right? Goneril's the work is awful. And, and then Albany is, is less bad or, or not bad. Um, in this case, Reagan is awful and Cornwall's even worse, but they're feeding each other. They are. So, so it begins with Reagan accepting her sister's accusations of guilt without um, considering her father. Uh, it, it, it goes on to Corn. Well, this might actually reverse my opinion, but it goes on to Cornwall putting the servant in stocks, which is a big deal, right? When the king has sends a messenger, yeah. that messenger has to be treated with the same respect that was, due the king that was himself. what Lear was so mad about. That's part yeah. of why he's so angry, right? Because they put him in stocks, and that's like saying, had you come yourself, we would have done this to you. Well, it's also like, you can't do anything about it. Oh, yeah, that's You're, right. There's no... What are you going to do? Yeah, you got you no power. Like, we're not scared of you. We're In fact, scared. he keeps asking them, who did this? 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 Periodically, yeah. right? Yeah. And they don't answer him for a and long then, time. And then later on, he's like, oh, you're out. We'll get back to that later. We'll deal with yeah, that later. Yeah. Um, then, so then, then Cornwall says, put him in stocks till noon. And then Reagan says, till night and through the night. Um, then... She just wants to pile on. You have this <laughs> scene where Reagan... Um, Reagan's talking, this is early in act two, scene one around line, uh, 90, 91, whatever, uh, Reagan and Gloucester are speaking and Gloucester has just told them what happened, has just told Reagan and Cornwall what happened with Edmund and Edgar. And Reagan says, what did my father's godson seek your life? He who my father named like, like. Edgar just did something awful from their perspective, right? Edgar just did something awful. And instead of saying, what? Edgar just did something awful. She says, my father's godson did something awful. The guy, my, the, 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 the guy, my father named did something awful, right? It's like trying to make sure the blame is also attached to her father. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. like Adam saying the wife that you gave me did this just so you know, you're guilty too here. God, <laughs> the wife yes. you gave me did this. Um, it's very, it's very, it, it just, it seems very uh, calculated, even just the way she talks about everything. Um, she never well, says, she says just enough, but not too much. And she, she withholds information and. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very crafty. Then, then of course, Goneril arrives and, you know, the conversation picks up again. And then, you know, he, he, Reagan or Lear goes on with Reagan to say in act is two, two, four to, you know, to tell her what's happened, what Goneril has been doing to him. And then she says, I pray you, sir, take patience, which sounds very, you know, very kind and patient herself. And then she says, I have hope you less know how to value her dessert than she to scant her duty, which is a clever way of saying you're misjudging her or I, I, it's more likely that you're misjudging her behavior towards you than that she's misjudging her responsibilities uh, as as a daughter and sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then she just repeats back to him that 
you know, if you had just restrained the rights of your followers and all this stuff, right. There's just like from the, from, from beginning to end of, of act two, wherever she's in it, there's this constant barrage of, of, well, this gaslighting effect, right. Where she's, Mm -hmm. she's either gaslighting him toward, or she, she's poisoning the well for other people and their opinions toward him, or she's gaslighting him directly. Hmm. Before we go, let's go back to something we were talking about in the first episode. We were talking about this concept of the necessary question. So I was thinking we should get our bearings as we go into act three. And yeah. think where do we think that, what do we think the necessary question is as we're entering act three of this play? Matt, what do you think of that? We'll do the reverse order of the, the final thoughts. So what do you see as the necessary question of after these first two acts? So for the, the necessary question for the whole play or the necessary question that I think will be answered in, in act three, or that I think it'll be addressed in act three, brought up. Let's do the, that one. Okay. So based on, based on the ending of act two, where, where they have both, both said the only way, or you, Reagan has said, you can't stay with me no matter what. Not, not tonight. Um, but you can stay with, you can stay with Goneril if you come back, if you go to her with no men and you get on your knees and you ask for forgiveness. And then he says, that's not happening. I would rather face the elements. And it has started storming at this point, which is, which is important, right? In, in uh, Tim, I think you probably would attest to this as well, but in Shakespeare's plays, when when the world is becoming disordered like relationships in the world are becoming disordered this the weather becomes disordered this is a big thing in movies too yeah right right it's it's called the pathetic fallacy in in julius caesar you get you get storms and you get lions walking around the streets Uh of rome right the Um, most famous cinematic or one of the most famous cinematic versions of this is for anybody who's seen casablanca when uh this in the flashback when Rick and um, Ilsa are saying goodbye and they don't know if they're going to see each other again. And it's this huge rainstorm starts to happen. It's one of the most famous shots um, in movie history. If you've ever seen Casablanca. Mm. So it's obviously a sad, terrible moment. And you know, their inner life is revealed through the, (laughs) through the The outer life of Paris. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he he actually says, um, uh, doesn't he says something about how he's going to face the in Act Two? Doesn't he say something about how he's going to face? Yeah, he's I think the, it's four, right? The it's elements. Um, I have full cause of weeping, but this heart shall break into a hundred thousand flaws or air. I'll no, that's what he's saying. I won't weep even if I have reason for it. Um, he does say that at some point. Yeah. But well, anyways, yeah, he says something about, he'd rather face the the elements than, than, you know, ask for her forgiveness or something. Um, and then he leaves or he leaves the room and then eventually leaves the the home there. And so, so I think the, I think the necessary question is probably going to be something like, you know, whether, whether Lear should 
ask for forgiveness or whether Lear should face the elements over and against his daughters or the, you know, kneel to his daughters or stand up to the elements or something, you know, how, what, depending on how, how you wanted to phrase it right. for him or against him or whatever. Right. Tim, do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I can go with that. What about the, what about, where do we stand on what the necessary question seems to be for the, the play itself? What did we say the last time? Whether he should, well, we were saying that divide his kingdom. Yeah, whether up. he should divide his kingdom up, but we didn't. You know, we said that. Let's see what happens. Where do we stand state on that right again, now? State again what the necessary question is. What is the nature of the necessary question? It's it's some concrete some concrete decision that is being made by a main character that that affects himself and and everybody around him through the story. And then that question is what leads us to these broader themes. So for sure. So it could be, as we said earlier, it seemed like it was, should Lear have divided his kingdom the way he did? But yeah. Has that quite, has it changed? I mean, has it become more specific? Has it become more focused? Is there something? Um, I don't know that this qualifies. It might not meet the criteria of necessary question and answer to the necessary question, but everything in me wants the reunion, wants the reunion between Lear and Cordelia. Hmm. Yeah. That's, That's good. good. <laughs> so they should he, whether he should have banished Cordelia. Cordelia. Right? And then one of the big questions from now, you know, reading right now is, you know, I talked about how it seems like since he got rid of her, things have become so disordered, even in his own mind. Oh, so yeah. the question is, when do they get, do they come back together? What, hap- what happens to that relationship? That seems to right. be a big question. Because Goneril and Reagan, the relationship with him is, that seems to be one of the things that this act did is it seems to be that they probably irreparably damaged, right? Yeah. But yeah. Cordelia is still out there and there's still some hope that Cordelia and Lear could be reconciled in a way that Goneril and Reagan almost certainly cannot. Right. Yeah. Okay. Can I, Tim, can I ask you a question about yeah. his re, his response to Goneril and Reagan? Um, especially in light of, of act two, because you, you might answer different at the end of act one than you would at the end of act, act two. But in light of act two, Apart from the calling down of curses upon the two daughters or the severity of the curses that he calls down upon the two daughters, apart from that, is his reaction to them just to the way they're treating him? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. all. No. So you think he should do what? Repent? Get with he's not the king anymore. I mean... I mean, even his reaction to when he sends his messenger um, to command, is it, I can't fit, remember if it's Reagan and Cornwall or Goneril and her husband, and, and the messenger returns and says, basically, they will by and by. He flies into a rage over that. Why? Because when a king orders, you don't say, we'll get to you when we can. You don't put a king on hold. You immediately do what the king says for you to do. And he flies into a rage because they don't act according to his commands anymore. And for me, that just kind of confirms my hypothesis that the problem that he has is that he cannot acknowledge that he's no longer king and just a human being. And anyone who fails to treat him as the king, even though he's given his kingdom away is going to send him into an absolute towering rage. So you so see I, him as actually having given up 
all claims to every part of the kingship. So he actually I just think, basically exoner or abdicated the throne and is and is a full fledged civilian. I think it's um, unclear. I don't think he says that, but for me, it begs the question that if you give all of your kingdom, if you give half of it to one daughter and half of it to the other, well, then what power or authority do you still retain? I think he thinks, oh, I retain time because I'm still the king. But I mean, let's, you know, in real politic, he has no power and he has no authority and he has no more position. And I think his daughters know that. What do you think his daughters know that? Or you think his daughters are manipulating it toward that? I think they know that. So what's the manipulating part then? Um, he's a distraction and an obstacle because plenty of people obviously still look at him as the king. You know, he has all these men around. He has, well, he had Kent around, um, Gloucester. So I think it's sort of like, um, this, is a, this is a terrible analogy, but when a, when a pastor leaves his church and they bring in a new pastor, um, the pastor who has had a relationship with his congregation for 30 years, they don't just say, oh, you no longer are the leader of this congregation. It's the new guy now. No, there's still like this relational um, affiliation and loyalty to the outgoing pastor, even when the new pastor is in. And I, I think that's the thing that Gonorill and Reagan are very concerned about even though they are now the rightful rulers of the kingdom, he still has kind of a repository of um, relational authority with the knights, probably with the citizens of the kingdom. And I think that is something, not a huge deal to them, but I think it's an obstacle to them. Hmm. And I think they don't love him. More crucially... So, yeah. so you think they, they don't owe him any of the things that he's demanding and therefore he's unjust to react so harshly to the failure, their failure to fulfill those demands. Yeah, right. Those exactly right. Whereas, I mean, I think loving daughters or loving sons for that matter would give the respect and honor to the outgoing father, even though he didn't retain the position of king anymore. I still think that we would give him the honor of that was owed, you know, a ruler of 30 years and a father. And they don't seem inclined even to give that. And you don't think that's part of his complaint? I do think that's part of his complaint. Yeah. But and I just his don't complaint know. still unjust? I think that part of it is just. My main complaint against him is how overblown his response is. I mean, he calls down. Um, a curse upon, is it gone or real? Did she not have children? Or that if she does have children, that well, he'll be I an ungrateful serpent. Apart from the curses. <laughs> oh, wait, what do you mean? I lost you. Well, I'm just wondering, is his reaction, like his his unwillingness to give up his nights, his unwillingness to repent 
and give up his nights, his unwillingness to um, do those things, to give into their demands in order for him to stay at their homes, his unwillingness to give up those those things, is that just or unjust? His unwillingness. Oh man, I don't that's a that's a hard one. And his overall I, anger, apart from the way the anger is manifested in the curses. Like being yeah. frustrated by the fact that they're not showing him any respect as a king or as a father. I I think he's he's I think it's legitimate for him to be frustrated. Yeah, I do. This I is think brilliant. Sorry, go I ahead. think they're um I think they're they're not honoring him. And I think he feels it and it hurts and it frustrates him. And I think that is an absolutely legitimate complaint. Yeah. I, th- this is brilliant. If, if you're right, um, what you have then is a story where a man is being both rightly and, or justly and unjustly wronged by his totally. daughters. And, totally. and therefore, therefore simultaneously demanding of us both sympathy and frustration. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, but, oh, William. But that's also genius. Isn't that what we're feeling anyway, though? Yeah. Like, well, I mean, maybe you guys, you're, I'm, you're making somewhat more sympathetic to Lear than you guys are, apparently. But well, but we can, I mean, <laughs> there's frustration and sympathy, right? Like you could say, it's frustrating because you are responding the way you do. I mean, right. I feel sympathy for him. Like that would really be terrible. If yeah. But for me, it's like, thing. it's like 10% frustration, 90%. <laughs> right. And for Tim, it's right. probably 60% frustration and 40% sympathy or even less. Well, I, the thing that's hard for me to accept is the curses that he rains down on his daughters. That's tough. I mean, yeah. I, I have to oh overlook my a lot goodness! To do that. <laughs> it's one. It's one thing to be mad. But it's another thing to wish that her wound dry up, and that's another level. And I don't think it's just a um, like. I think he wants that to happen. I think because he is so. Uh, he has no clear vision of who he is. I think he thinks that his curses could actually bring that about. Hmm. 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 Well, that with w- that, it's <laughs> up because we've been going almost an hour and a half. Yeah. Well, if you're right about that, I want to see that in the text. You have to help me. You, you help me see that because if he actually believes that he can call down these curses and and they'll be answered and genuinely wants them to be answered, then my my ratio of, of frustration to sympathy will shift strongly. <laughs> um, I tend to think of it more like the whole, oh, I'm so mad at you, Tim. I could kill you. Yeah, that right, right. Curse, but, um, and I, I think I yeah. will cite, just to prep everybody, I will cite 3-2. 3-2 is the reason that I think that he has power over nature. Act three. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that next week. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, now well, we have look to look close. Now we have to talk one. about it next yeah. week. Well, yeah. thanks to you. Thanks to you both for your um, your disagreements. The occasional diatribe that I got to <laughs> I that I got to watch Matt fight with a bug in in the studio. Um, Tammy, you really missed out as far as that goes. I wish I could have seen that. Thanks to everybody who's been listening. Um, thank you for subscribing. If you would leave a starred. Uh, comment on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts and a written 
review as well. Those are very helpful for us as we try to grow this show. Tell all your friends about it. If you have friends who like Shakespeare and if they don't like Shakespeare, they need to learn to like Shakespeare. So they probably should be listening then as well. Um, Don't forget about our uh, daily poem show that just launched today, actually. So, well, today is Monday, the 27th that we're recording, but um, you can search the daily poem wherever you get podcasts and you get a three to five or, you know, in that range minute uh, show every morning that where we read a poem to you. So if you're interested in such things, um, go find that. Um, and of course we do have the, uh, close reads network, Facebook group. You can search for that and join the conversation. And if you want to get some ongoing news, um, about the show, but aren't on Facebook, or even if you are, you can go over to closereadspods.com and sign up for our newsletter that goes out once every two weeks with information, um, on backgrounds, you know, articles, um, trailers for, King Lear adaptations, all of the things that are, you know, bonus content for some of the things that we're seeing as we're reading and thinking about all this, then you can get that there as well. So again, that's closefoodspods.com and you can sign up for the news. And in one more month from today, we will be able to watch the uh, Anthony Hopkins. That's right. On there, Amazon. On Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. The trailer for which was LinkedIn this week. One week from today? I think one week from, or one month from tomorrow. I think it's in September, month, yeah. yeah. September 28th, I think it is. Sorry, did I say week? Yeah, Forgive me. Birthday. It's one month. Sorry if I got people's hopes up. <laughs> no, I, you said, I think you did say month. Okay. All right. Well, for Matt Bianco, for Tim McIntosh, and for the little bug that is following us around here in the studio, I'm David Curran. Thanks so much for listening to the plays to sing on the Close Reads Podcast Network. Happy reading, and we'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.